Check, 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 check. One, two. All set. And as I mentioned earlier, when we were uh, just starting our service today, we're taking a, a few weeks in this little interim period. We generally tend to preach through books of the Bible and just walk through verse 1 through uh, every chapter. We did that through the book of Matthew over the last year and some change. And we're going to be looking at an Old Testament book in just a couple of weeks. But in this small little sort of interim break period, we're taking a moment to look at uh, our values as a church, our vision, our values and vision. And so one of the values that we have as a church, and you'll see this on the website if you've ever been on the website, is the fact that we strive to be gospel-centered. So two weeks ago, i got to get my timing right because I was sick last week, and we had a video uh, sermon up here. Two weeks ago, we looked at uh, the, one of the values we have as a church, and that is humility. It's one of the things that Jesus describes he wants his church to be like, his apostles, his disciples to be like, humility. This week, we're going to look at this concept called gospel-centered. What does that mean? Well, I'll explain it more as we get going. But let's read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, and that'll give us an idea of where we're headed today. Um, This is Paul. He's talking uh, to the church, and there is a division forming in the church. Shocker. Fourteen years later, it says, I went up again. That is Paul talking. He says, I went up again to Jerusalem this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. And this matter arose, and this is what we're going to focus on today, this whole matter this discussion, this argument, it arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks as Christians to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, that is, the non-Jews, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and that they should go to the Jews. And they asked, and all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Okay, so we have a confrontation here. Because he was clearly in the wrong. He was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and to separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. 
The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, that's what we're going to talk about today, the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Let me pull something up real fast on my computer. Because it's, it's better if I illustrate it uh, here. I had it pulled up earlier. Cinderella. Boom. Here we go. All right. Can you guys see this? Oh, yeah. This is going to work great. Okay. Now, Cinderella's story. Do you know Cinderella's story, Andrew? Have you ever heard this one? I'm going to do it real fast. Because I have a little girl. I don't know if any of you have little girls. But they love princesses. So I have gotten sucked into the world of both unicorns and princesses. And as I was studying this passage, as I was looking at what does it mean to be gospel-centered, I could not help but think of Cinderella. So hopefully you will catch the connection. I'm using Cinderella as a frame, as just an illustration. Think of it as an illustration, as a frame for what we're talking about today. But to refresh your memory, here is this a super abbreviated version of the Cinderella story. You ready? We're going to go real fast. Okay. It's only 16 slides, so it's going to be real fast. Once upon a time, there was a girl named Cinderella. Duh. All the animals loved her, especially two mice named Gus and Jack. They'd do anything for the girl they called Cinderella. But Cinderella lived with her stepmother and her two stepsisters, Anastasia and Drizella. They were very mean to Cinderella, making her work all day cleaning, sewing, and cooking. She tried her best to make them happy. Cinderella's stepmother, Lady Tremaine, was cold, cruel, and jealous of Cinderella's charm and beauty. She enjoyed giving Cinderella extra chores to do, such as bathing her cat, Lucifer. It's an appropriate name, Lucifer, for the cat, right? But one day, a messenger arrived with a special invitation. There was going to be a royal ball at the palace. The king wanted his son to find a bride. Every young woman in the kingdom was invited, including Cinderella. Cinderella was very excited about the ball. In the attic, she found a dress that had belonged to her mother. It was a bit old-fashioned, but Cinderella could make it beautiful. Lady Tremaine didn't want Cinderella to go to the ball. She wanted the prince to meet Anastasia and Drizella. Maybe he would marry one of them. Lady Tremaine, Tremaine kept Cinderella busy with chores that would take her all night to finish. Sad, sad face. While Cinderella was working, the mice and birds fixed her dress. They added ribbons and beads that the two stepsisters had thrown away. Working together, the animals turned a simple dress into a fabulous gown. Cinderella was overjoyed when she saw the dress. Now she could go to the ball. Oh, thank you so much, Cinderella said to Gus, Jack, and the birds. When the stepsisters saw the old ribbons and beads on Cinderella's dress, they flew into a rage. They ripped the dress and pulled off the beads. Lady Tremaine didn't stop them. Cinderella's dream of going to the ball was through. But Cinderella ran away to the garden to cry. Suddenly, her fairy godmother appeared. With a wave of her wand, she turned a pumpkin into an elegant coach. Cinderella could now go to the ball, but her dress was still ruined. 
Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, said the fairy godmother, waving her wand again. Cinderella was now wearing a beautiful gown and sparkling glass slippers. But all this came with a warning. When the clock struck midnight, the magic spell would wear off. At the ball, Prince Charming couldn't take his eyes off Cinderella. The orchestra played and the prince began to dance with the wonderful girl whose name he still didn't know. For Cinderella, the night was a dream come true. Before too long, the clock began to strike midnight. Goodbye, Cinderella said, hurrying away. Come back, called the prince. I don't even know your name. As Cinderella fled, one of her glass slippers came off. The prince sent the Grand Duke to find the girl who fit the glass slipper. Lady Tremaine locked Cinderella in the attic, but Cinderella's mouse friends freed her. Then Lady Tremaine tripped the Grand Duke, and the glass slipper shattered. But Cinderella had the other in her pocket, and it fit. Cinderella and the prince were soon married. Everyone rejoiced, including Cinderella's mouse friends, who wore special outfits to the wedding. Very important, very important point. Filled with joy, Prince Charming and Cinderella lived... Yeah, yeah, the end. Okay. I know you're wondering what's going on here. I'm going to explain myself. And here's how I'm going to explain it. We're going to look at basically four points from this passage and how they connect to the Cinderella story. Here's what they are. The four points we're going to look at. The background. We're going to look at the background for the Cinderella story and for the gospel message of Paul. We're going to look at the starting point for Cinderella and the sisters and for Paul and the false brothers in our passage this morning. And lastly, oh no, sorry, then we're going to look at the solution for Cinderella and the sisters and for Paul and the false brothers. And then we're going to conclude with the outcome, the outcome for Cinderella and the sisters and for Paul and what I'm calling the false brothers. That is the people he was in conflict with in the passage that we read. Now the background, the background, here's our starting point. The background is extremely important. What's in the background for the Cinderella story? And I would say for the Bible and for life in general. I'll tell you. (laughs) Because it's a hard one to guess. The king is in the background. The king. The king and the kingdom. Now, if you were with us, many, some of you weren't, but if you're with us for our study as we walk through the book of Matthew, something that Jesus talked about all the time in his earthly ministry, was the kingdom. The king and the kingdom. It is in the background of both the Cinderella story and of all of Scripture. All of Scripture. There is a king. If there is a God, the Bible describes it as not just any God, but a king. A sovereign king over all. And we are his creation. We are his subjects. And so we find that also in the background, of course, of the Cinderella story that we're looking at this morning. You know, if there is a God, many people, if they're starting to wonder that question, if they're beginning, even if a person is just dabbling in this idea of, might there be a God? The first question that arises after that is, how are we to relate to it, to him? What is our relationship to a God? That's what all religions are trying to answer, but certainly, especially, Christianity. We see that even in our passage this morning. Let's continue now to talk about this background. Okay, so in the Cinderella story, it all starts with an invitation. There's a knock on the door, bang, bang, bang! And then there's an invitation presented. And it's an invite to be in the presence of the king. 
to come to the royal ball, to be with the king. In fact, it goes even further in the story, to be wed to the king. The most intimate relationship of all, to be wed to the king. And what happens to the girls in the story? They all get excited, right? Especially Cinderella. This is the chance, right? We get to be in the presence of the king. There's excitement first. And then the second question they all ask, and this is what Lyndon loves about the story, my little five-year-old daughter. She loves what comes next. What are we going to wear? <gasps> I can't wait to figure out what dress. I'm going to go shop all around town. And now that's true for Drizella and Anastasia. But of course, for Cinderella, she has nothing, right? All she has is rags. She lives upstairs in this horrible attic. Her stepmother has put her in, and all she has is rags. She has nothing to wear. But you guys, this is also behind the entire Old Testament. If you've ever read any of the Old Testament in the Bible, that is the first half of the the books of the Bible, you'll discover immediately that it is all about the invitation of the king to make a people his own. They're called the Israelites in the Old Testament. It's an invitation of the king to make a people his own. And you know what? They get excited. Because God is going to be their God. We're going to be His people. That's their reaction to this news that God has invited a people to be His people. And you know what the second thing is? What are we going to wear? That's what they do. I, I don't know if you've ever studied much of the Old Testament, but one of the things you'll discover is the priestly garments. These things were intense, y'all. There was like all these colors they had to wear and there were tassels at the bottom. There was, a, there was a covering of an ephod that the priest had to wear, the high priest had to wear over his chest and it had all these different stones that represented different tribes of Israel. And basically the reason it represented the tribes of Israel is because you had to dress a certain way to go to the king. Same thing's happening in our story. You have to be dressed a certain way to go to the king because the Israelites knew and we learn in the story of Cinderella that you don't just approach a holy and awesome God any way you want. And that's one of the primary things of the Old Testament we find is that God, this God of the Bible, is a holy and an awesome God. Worthy of all the worship of our lives. That's a big deal. And because of that, you don't just walk in wearing whatever. You see it in the story of Cinderella, right? Cinderella gets her dress ripped, and she knows. She knows. Now that my dress is ripped, I can't go to the ball. I cannot be near the king. I'm too ugly. I'm too dirty. I'm too messed up. You see, that was the starting point for Cinderella. The starting point for Cinderella is I'm dirty. There's a humility there. This is what Jesus talked about when he said, if we're coming to the king, we first have to realize what our starting point is. And it's not much different than Cinderella. Jesus said in the chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus said, blessed are those that are poor in spirit. What does poor in spirit mean? It means someone who is downcast because they realize that they're dirty, they're unworthy, that their clothing is ripped that they have nothing to offer. It's the starting point both for Cinderella and for people coming to God according to Jesus. Now, in contrast, in contrast, in the New Testament you have the Pharisees who come to God with all of their good deeds. 
They're proud of themselves. They think they're awesome, right? And you've got Anastasia and Drizella in our story this morning, and they think they're something else, don't they? They're the stepsisters, and they're like, we've got money, we've got class, we've got privilege. Here we come, king. Watch out. Of course the prince is going to want to dance with us. We have so much to offer. And of course the stepmother's like, yes, yes, you have so much to offer. You're bringing all of your good things, all of your privilege, all your good deeds, and you're going to come to God and He's going to accept you. Right? Not the message of Jesus. Not the message of Jesus. Not the message of the Old Testament. This is what is happening in our passage here in Galatians chapter 2. Right? Paul is saying, all you need is Jesus. To approach the God of the universe, this holy and awesome God, who is the creator of everything that we can see, the creator of our being, the creator of our friendships, the giver of all good gifts. You can approach Him through Jesus alone. That was Paul's gospel message. He went to the Gentiles and he went to the Jews, both, with this gospel message. And I would compare it to the equivalency of having a blue dress. I'm just using the, I'm using the picture, the analogy. It's like having a blue dress. And Paul is saying, all you need to come to God. Everything that we see in the Old Testament, all these ceremonial laws about cleanliness, about hand washing, about foods you can eat, foods you can't eat, and all these things that, that are regulations and rules about coming to God, and there's outer, there's outer rings to the temple to go to God, and only certain people can get into the out, very outer ring, and then only certain other people can get to the next ring in there, and then only cert, uh, one person can get into the very holy of holies inside there. There's all these rules, there's all these regulations, there's all these ceremonial laws. And Paul's saying... They're all done away with in Jesus Christ. He is the one garment. Remember in that song we sang earlier? Naked naked I come, but to the cross I cling. Jesus is my one covering. Paul is saying all you need is the blue dress. But the people he was confronting in this passage are saying, no, no, no. He He calls them false brothers in this passage in Galatians. They're saying, no, 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 you need circumcision. No, 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 you need hand washing. No, no, no. You've got to not disregard all these Old Testament regulations and rules. Right? These ceremonial laws. They're like, you have to add these, Paul. For someone to be a real Christian, they've got to add these certain regulations. These certain ceremonial laws. And Paul's like, not having it. He's like, I'm not having it. All, all that is needed is Jesus. You see that? Let's look real quick back at Galatians chapter 2. You see it in the fact in verse, uh, let's say verse 6. As for those who seemed to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. Paul's actually happy right now. He's gone before this council in Jerusalem, and they have decided with him and said, okay, there is nothing that needs to be added to, to, to Paul's message of Jesus alone. Jesus alone for salvation. Jesus plus nothing for salvation. That's the gospel message. That's what Paul's been preaching. And that's what is getting messed with by these false brothers. They're saying, no, you've got to add stuff. 
You've got to add, and to, use, to carry forward my analogy a little bit, you've got to add dirty rags onto it. Then and only then will you truly be accepted by God. You have to add your dirty rags of your good deeds. We've got to add certain regulations, certain rules. And Paul's like, look, you don't have to throw away all of your cultural differences. He's talking to the Jewish people, and he's not like, you have to, wait, you have to throw away everything about your culture. He's not saying that. But he's saying when it comes to approaching God, when it comes to a relationship with the God of the universe, all that is needed is the covering of Jesus Christ. That was his message start to finish. All that is needed, that's what it means to be gospel-centered. All that is needed is Jesus. You know, let's, t- let's think about this personally for just a minute. Do you want to know God? I mean, you're at church. Do you want to connect with God? Have you been wanting to find God? To be near to God? To experience God? To feel God? To enter into the presence of the Holy Father? There is nothing else needed to go to that place except for Jesus. Nothing. The Bible is super clear about this. Paul's been super clear about this. You don't need a good record. You don't have to clean yourself up. This is this beautiful purity of the gospel message. You come as you are covered in Jesus alone. That's how we come to God. No rags on the blue dress. That's what Paul was saying to these folks that he's arguing with here in this passage. You may be thinking, okay, why is it so important that Nathan is pushing this, that Paul, hundreds of years ago, pushed this same message, Jesus alone for salvation? You may have heard it in different ways over the course of time. If you've ever heard of this idea of the five solas of Christianity, right? There's this idea of you know, grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone. It's, it's, I mean, it, y'all, it has literally divided entire branches of the church. This, this concept of Jesus alone for salvation. Many would say, no, it's Jesus plus good works. It's Jesus plus, you've got to do these, other, these cultural things. It's Jesus plus these other things. Y'all, the church, and I'm not saying we, we, we might not be prone to it, okay? I'm not, I don't want to be prideful. But I'm just saying, it is so easy for the church and for us as individuals to fall into the practice of Jesus plus good works. Jesus plus something else to come to God. It just feels so good. You want to know why? It gives us the credit. Uh, let me, let me, I'm going to um, kind of wrap us up with this. Um, what Paul is getting at in this passage. What Paul is getting at. And I want to look at the kind of the so what question. Okay, Nathan, you talk about the gospel. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. The gospel is I clothe myself and the deeds of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and I come to God, and I don't need anything else. Okay, that's what Paul was saying. Jesus plus nothing. What difference does this make in the real world? I think that's an important question for us to look at and to answer. What difference? So what? It's a neat concept. Jesus alone. Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Well, two things as we conclude. Two things. I think two major differences. Y'all, it's freedom versus slavery. And this plays out in the real world. Freedom versus slavery. And then secondly, it's love versus persecution. Love versus persecution. 
So let me, let's look at this, this concept of freedom versus slavery. Slavery to sin, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, y'all, it has everything to do with motivation. Motivation matters. The motivation for why we do the things we do in life matters deeply. It matters uh, not just to your emotions, but it matters to your actions. Y'all, if I came in here and I said, just be good. Right? That's the message of the church, right? Isn't that the message of Christianity? Isn't that the message of religion? Isn't it? Be good. (laughs) You're screwing up. Right? I mean, it's crazy. People come to church to hear that all the time. Or different religious books or whatever. Be good. You already know the answer. Right? I mean, that's just a duh. It, no religion is going to argue with me. No great teacher throughout time is going to argue with me that we aren't supposed to be good as people. Be moral. Go. Do it. That's it. Summary. Right? But here's the, here's the, here's the key difference between the gospel message and how it applies to that and to just sheerly telling you to go be good. You already know that, right? Don't you? You're supposed to be good. You're supposed to be nice to people, moral. Am I telling you something new? What's your motivation? Because your motivation is guilt and shame, which comes by good works being your path to salvation. That's the end result. If it's not Jesus who saves you, it's your good works that saves you. And the, and the next step is guilt and shame, guilt and shame, guilt and shame being the motivators for any sort of good deed in your life, in my life. And y'all, guilt and shame as the motivators for doing good in this life will lead to two things primarily. It will lead to sin, hiding, and numbness. That's, that, that's the end path. If, let, let's test this for a minute. Let's test this for a minute. If I tell you here this morning, if I say, y'all, a conclusion to this passage is, go love your family well. That is, that's mean to do that to you. It is, without giving you proper motivation. Because you know, and I know, you don't, you haven't loved your family well. You're not. I mean, there might be some moments, right? Some sweet moments in there where you really love your family well, but a lot of it is, is cruelty, guilt, shame, etc. Right? And, and what happens is when we hide and when we numb ourselves to the guilt and the shame that we feel often in this life, we then sin. Right? Drugs. It's what numbs us to the guilt and shame of life. And then we feel more guilt and shame for what we've just done And then the cycle continues. Motivation matters. Jesus being the motivation matters. Y'all, if we got into the depth of our heart and our soul and our mind, the blue dress alone, that Jesus alone is the thing that makes us loved, that you are treasured, that you are valuable, you're in, you're forgiven, you're favored, you are the son, you are the daughter of the God of the universe, When that sinks in, when that sinks in, when that's the motivation underneath it all, I can say to you, go live your family well. And you might actually be able to love your family well because you have a completely different motivation for doing so. The joy of salvation through Jesus Christ. So that is 
Freedom versus slavery. Freedom versus slavery. Paul says, let me, let's go back and read it real quick, just to reiterate what Paul says. He says in verse 4, this whole matter arose, this, this confusion and this talking about the gospel arose because some false brothers had infiltrated, catch it, had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ and to make us slaves. It is trying to do good without the power of the gospel, without the power of Jesus Christ underneath it all is slavery. It is. It will guilt you and it will shame you into dark corners and holes in your life. And you will live in those dark corners and holes for a long time and you'll spew them onto other people. You'll spew that same guilt and shame onto other people. I've done it. I've done it. I have shamed people. It it breaks my heart because that was the core I was operating under. Not the gospel of Jesus Christ and the joy that comes from Him being my covering, but because I thought I had to do, I had to do things to get the approval of God. Okay, so moving on. Finally, love versus persecution. This is in verse 12, y'all. Verse 12, it says, okay. Paul says, Before certain men came from James, he, that is Peter, He used to eat with the Gentiles. He used to eat with people that were were considered unclean or not cool or the out crowd or the the gross people. He used to to eat with them. But when they arrived, that is the false brothers arrived, he began to draw back and to separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That's the other real-world outcome of works righteousness of my good things I do make me acceptable and approved by God instead of Jesus makes me acceptable and approved by God. The other outcome is persecution versus love, real love. Well, let me, let me explain. Anastasia and Drizella persecuted. Did you see them in our little story of Cinderella this morning? They persecuted Cinderella. There's a motivation there. There's a why there. Here, here's, y'all... I'm going to call a spade a spade here. Just admit something. The church has persecuted people throughout its history. The church has missed the message of the gospel at all different junctures, which is why we strive to be gospel-centered. Here Peter is sitting down with people who just a few months ago were unclean, were considered outcasts by him, and the gospel was bringing equality. The gospel was bringing equality. The gospel brings down cultural barriers constantly. People are able to eat together who are not able to eat together before. But works righteousness, saying I am saved because of my good deeds before God, it makes you into a persecutor. Why does it make you into a persecutor? As we break this down, Think about the insecurity of, I have no idea if I'm approved by God at any given moment. I may do really, really well today, but tomorrow I could totally screw it up. I could totally mess up all this goodwill that I think I've engendered towards this God of the universe, who I want to be close to, who I want to connect with, but man, it could all fall apart tomorrow. There is an incredible insecurity there of, I never know. 
I have no idea what God thinks of me in this moment or what he might think of me tomorrow if I mess up some more. So combine that insecurity with a deep sense of superiority. Right? If God saves people on the basis of them being good, and I have noticed in the world around me that some people get saved and some people don't, then guess what? I'm better. I am intrinsically, at the heart of it, I'm better. I'm better. It's just how it works out, right? So you take this insecurity of, I never know my standing before God, and you combine that with a superiority of, I'm better than other people, and you've got yourself a recipe for persecution. And that's exactly what was happening in Galatians chapter 2. This group that was at one time equal and together and sharing fellowship and meals with one another was now completely separated and broken apart, and they were jabbing each other. They were coming at each other with, i got to persecute you because I'm better than you. And i got to show you how I'm... Y'all, the way you can tell that the true gospel of Jesus Christ has moved into someone's heart or your own heart is the fact that you stop seeing the problems in this world as that other group's fault. You name it. I don't know who you might put in that box, but just think of the other group. They're the problem with the world. That's, again, when the gospel has not done its work, that is the way we operate. We all do it. We all do it. All of us. Y'all, I see this in Charlottesville, right? Charlottesville has gotten through a lot of division. It's been hard being here and watching and seeing the different divisions we have in our community. And it's been a reminder to me of the danger of labeling the problems in our world as that group's fault. That group's fault. It's, again, it's that persecutor mentality. One of my favorite authors of all times is this British guy named G.K. Chesterton. And one time there was, an, there was a contest And it was a contest that the newspaper, the London Times, sent out to all of the major authors who were living in England at the time. And the question they asked was, what do you think is wrong with the world? And there was huge essays being sent in about all these different reasons of the world. G.K. Chesterton sent in one piece of paper, and it had two words on it. You know what those two words were? I am. I am. That is the gospel at work in a human heart. It's moved from persecution of them, of that other group, to I need salvation and I can't produce it on my own. I can't scratch my way to the top. I ain't going to make it. But I have Jesus. That's the gospel message. Y'all, that, oh my gosh, that's my dream for this church. My dream is that we be a people that have been powerfully changed by the gospel, by Jesus alone. Because when that happens, y'all, we go out and when we encounter people, the first thing we do is we don't give them good advice. We give them good news before we give them good advice. We don't say, you need to be better. We say, ooh, I'm a mess. But I have Jesus and I have joy and I have been forgiven and I invite you to the same thing. Did you know that Jesus can do the same for you? It's, it's a radically different way, even of interacting with other people, when the gospel begins to really take root in our hearts. Many people think that the gospel is the starting point for the Christian life, right? That it's like, yeah, I said, yeah, faith in Jesus, I did that one time. 
you know, 20 years ago, whatever, five years ago, five minutes ago, whatever it is. But what the Bible teaches us, what Paul's teaching us here in Galatians, is that it, the gospel is the way we continue in the Christian faith. Continually applying the gospel truth of Jesus alone is how we also grow in the Christian faith, which is why we celebrate communion here every week. Let's pray. Lord God, I, I, don't, I cannot speak for everyone in here today, but I know for myself, Lord, I know for myself that I often want to pull in other things beside Jesus for my approval before You, Lord. I think You don't love me. I guilt and shame myself. I guilt and shame my family. Lord, break me of that. May Your Gospel break me of that. And if anyone else in here finds themselves falling into the same pattern, Lord, break them by Your Gospel, by Jesus Christ Himself, that we have nothing else, (laughs) but that we can have joy and freedom Freedom in Jesus. True life, true grace, true hope, true newness, true goodness because of Your work for us and in us. Lord, I pray for anyone in here this morning that may not have experienced the fullness of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. I pray that today would be the day that they throw themselves on Jesus and find a life changed by the power of the cross. Lord, thank You that we get to worship together. Thank You that we get to center in on Jesus Christ. Lord, we bless Your name this morning. We bless Your name. We, we ask that by Your power, You would make us a church that is centered on Jesus and that is centered on the gospel message. We pray this all in His name. Amen. I think the kiddos have started coming back in. And as I mentioned, you know, we, we end our service with communion. And it's not because we just think it's cool, although I do think it's cool, uh, to have communion. It's a reminder, a visible picture on a weekly basis of what our salvation is based in of what Jesus did for us, of what He is constantly doing in us. Because, you know, on the night that He was betrayed, Jesus was with His disciples in the upper room. And He said, this is My body. And it's about to be broken for you. And it's going to be broken because I'm going to give you My whole life. I'm going to, you're going to exchange all of your sin and I'm going to give you all of my perfectness and righteousness. What a glorious exchange. We would simply ask, based on Paul in chapter 11 of Corinthians, that if if you have not looked to Jesus alone for your salvation before God, for your connection with God, that you would let these elements pass by and just spend a few moments in prayer. Just asking God to check you where your heart is at today and to draw you towards Himself, towards Jesus Christ. But if you have called Jesus your Savior, your Savior alone, this meal's for you. Join in with joy, with gladness, with the beauty of the fact that He unites us to Christ, and because of that, He unites us to one another. Eat in remembrance. Thanks, Doug.
Yeah. The body of Christ broken for you. Eat now in remembrance. On that night, when Jesus was betrayed by his disciples, he also took the wine of the Passover meal that he was sharing with his disciples in the upper room. And he said, okay, this wine, this wine represents the fact that this blood of mine is going to take away all your sins. I am going to wash you clean through my blood. And so we celebrate that today. And as a reminder, as this comes around, the outside ring is grape juice and all of the inside rings are wine. Just a heads up.